A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Move Your Mind. My name's Nick Brax, and this is a podcast where we have real conversations with real people and give real advice. For this episode, I've put together a compilation of some of the most popular episodes we've had on the show. I just want to say thank you so much for supporting this podcast. I can't believe this is episode 150. It honestly feels like it's not that long ago since I launched it. But on reflection, there have been so many amazing interviews. I've personally learned so much. I've heard back from so many of you, and I just really, really appreciate the support. And I've said it many times. I couldn't do it without the support of each and every one of you. Thank you again for supporting us. Hope you all have a great Christmas and New Year's and see you next year. But I think that it really boils down to um, you just not wanting to stay complacent and figure out how to do something. I I think that the best entrepreneurs Mm. are people that, uh, that really... Uh, enjoy doing puzzles, right? Maybe you haven't even done a puzzle for years, but you enjoy the process of like thinking and trying to figure something out. And even people like Elon Musk, I mean, you know, it's Mm. just Mm. never really thinks this product is perfect, right? There's always something that you're adding on. And I think that that's really the core difference between somebody who really enjoys being an entrepreneur and frankly, the most successful companies are the ones that, you know, you'll launch a product because it's not perfect or a service or whatever, but you know that you're going to keep striving to get better, but you're also going to celebrate what you've done so far. And I think that that's a really important thing that whether it's, you know, making, being super successful, as you said, or along the way, Mm -hmm. what are those Mm -hmm. things that you were able to do that, uh, maybe you didn't think at one point you were going to be able to achieve those things. I, I share this with entrepreneurs all the time that, you know, they'll say, well, you're a much larger company now. I mean, I'm just like a tiny company. I'm like, look, like y- you got to celebrate even the first dollar that you make. You got to celebrate the million dollars. You celebrate the 10 million, right? As you go along the way. And, you know, what's most fun as Steve Jobs used to say it's the dots eventually connect. You, re- you mm-hmm. recognize that all of those challenging times and the way that you actually stepped forward and through and broke down walls and diversified and all of these things help you to not only be a better leader and a better CEO, but also a better human. And I think that, you know, people have said about me, you're so resilient, you're so, you know, this, this, and I'm like, but it's, it's about all of those challenges along the journey that make you who you are. And I think, you know, you, I'm sure clearly believe that too. It's just, it's like accepting those times and knowing that they help you to be who you want to be and who are yeah. you who are meant to be. I, I really love that. Cause that was one of the questions I wanted to ask about, you know, what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs? So that that answered it beautifully and I found that really useful for myself as well. Very passionate about and if it can if my messages can help one person and get one person through a hard day then it's worth it. And I'm sure they they will and can and and have and 
you know, like you said, there's so many, mental health is so complicated and there's so many different issues people have or different things to deal with. And there's not enough, we're not educated about it. We're not taught in school. We're not taught in mainstream media, like you're saying, things like OCD. It is, it's used in a very throwaway sort of way that oh, I've just had a bit of OCD today. The same as me. Um, I've had so much OCD growing up and it's something I have to manage where I'll find if I'm not self-aware enough or not you know looking after myself I can fixate on things and you know it's a hard thing to manage and I think a lot of people that are in entertainment uh in creative sort of industries you we have that kind of mind because that's part of what also makes you good at being that's what makes you creative exactly yeah I mean my mind is I like to I like an OCD to kind of being like allergic to life because I feel like there are triggers just everywhere I look <laughs> but it's also like my mind is so open to so many insane possibilities that it's also what makes me um I don't know it's what makes me creative I guess Absolutely no 100% and I think you know it needs to be and I I used to find get so frustrated with how my mind works so many things the certain things that everyday things that for most people that would just you wouldn't you know give it a second thought and 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 they will just be incredibly difficult for me and then on the same token things that some people would be like I don't know how you can do that it's like well that's you know you don't even have to think about that so it's like this I think you learn to say looking at it that you know you wouldn't have the positive without the negative and you become grateful for having that because it gives you the other you know abilities that you have but then it's it comes down to how do I manage this and how do I understand it more and um I think, you know, it's so important that we have people like you vocalizing that because there just is not enough education about this. It's it's insane that we're yeah. not. I mean, likewise, yeah. I, I agree. It's I'm personally affected the most by OCD, but I know that there's so many other issues out there, so many more disorders out there that are misconstrued in the media or we just don't have enough information. And I just think we could really change people's lives by educating because... I didn't. I at first didn't know what was going on with me when I when I was young and I had OCD. I had no idea. I was confused. I thought I was going crazy, and and then to know and to learn that there's a name for what I was going through was huge. And I still am trying to find a you know constantly trying to find a community of people who are also going through the same thing as me. So that's why I I you know I like to put it out there that you know yeah. OCD is a, a big struggle for me because I know it affects a lot of people. And uh, I just want to just want them to know that they're not, they're not alone. Yeah, absolutely, and that's a big part of it. You know, it's just being, and a huge part of what I'm trying to do with all of this is just literally just show people that it's okay to be vulnerable and be honest and open. And the position you're in is that difficult to, or has that been a scary thing to do? Because I guess a lot of people are told wrongly that. Um, whether it's, you know, whether you're an actor or whether you're in a corporate job or whatever it is that don't ever talk about anything personal because then people might not want to hire you or they might not take you serious. You know, they might be see you as a liability, which it just infuriates me because <laughs> everyone has different problems. And yeah, these, The absolutely. way they're looked at, this is just part of life. Like, it really is. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, to your point, I... At first, I, you know, I've struggled since I was young. So going into the entertainment industry, I was struggling. And I think at first there was this, like, it was heavily stigmatized. And I I didn't know whether to speak up about it. But it was, it's such a huge part of my life. I wanted to. But 
I was like, does this mean that I don't book the next job that I go out for? Does this mean that I, you know, people are judging me? Does this mean that when I get to set, I'll have eyeballs on me, people waiting for me to like have a breakdown? I don't know. Um, but I will say that as time has gone on, I, I do feel like while it's still a massive issue, there is a little bit less of a stigma. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's less of a stigma, but I, I notice an openness in talking about it and that's kind of that's kind of encouraged me to be vocal about it myself and it's something that I I I don't want to have to hide it's a part of my life and it's also what informs my acting like I think that Mm. I am the actor I am and the artist I am because of that it's such a huge part of me I just don't see how it's possible to like not talk about it most courageous thing you've ever done I'm sure there's lots of them but um the most courageous thing that I've ever done was the most courageous thing that I've ever done. And it was actually the anniversary yesterday. I know this will be, um, actually it's the anniversary today for me, um, was when my little brother went missing in Nepal and, um, I, it was the anniversary of the earthquake yesterday, obviously for the listeners, this is recorded slightly different time. And, uh, yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget how awful that was waking up and finding out that there'd been an earthquake and he was on Mount Everest. And, and I, uh, I booked a ticket that day straight away. I went home and I kneeled and I, I prayed. I couldn't stop crying because I just felt like he was more than likely dead because where he was was the where he was supposed to be was the hardest hit and every everyone there reportedly had died the thing about mount everest is when you start to trek up you have no con- connection with uh, with the outside world so we didn't know that he'd actually chosen a different route thank god his angels mm. were him and uh it wasn't his time but I didn't know and I booked a ticket to go straight away that morning to fly to Kathmandu that night. And everybody kept saying to me, you know, uh, there are experts going there, like leave it to the rescuers and stuff. And I said, no, I only have to find one person. I need to find my brother. And even if I'm going to get his body, I'm going to bring it home and I'm going to find him. And I said, regardless of whether he's dead or alive, I want him to know that I came to get him and that someone mm. came straight away. And it was really difficult because someone um, in the media, I can't remember his name, a real asshole on TV, he, uh, oh, I wish I could remember his name. I'm, oh, I'm glad that I can't remember his name because he's so insignificant to me. But it was, it was yeah. the nastiest thing in the world. Because he was on morning television, he hosted Deal or No Deal, so they'd know who he was. But he made a statement trying to say that I was getting publicity out of my brother's disappearance in Nepal, and that was that's shocking. It was it was the it was the first time I ever really felt Australia. I felt how how brutal and and disgusting people can be yeah to think that that he could even insinuate that and it hurt me a lot and it hurt me to come back to australia it made me 
it, it upset me for such a long time. And then I was turning 30 not long after that. And I'd sort of withdrawn a lot. And I, and I was suffering. I didn't know at the time, but I had post-traumatic stress disorder from the whole ordeal because, um, you know, in the end I went there and I was digging in Kathmandu and I dug up dead bodies and wow. it, it took years for my, my little brother's still sort of getting over it. And, and, and the struggle has been real for both of us. Uh, but I love the fact that I did it. And when my 30th birthday came around, you know, I thought I didn't feel like I could have a party or anything. So I did a big fundraiser for Nepal instead. I called it a night for Nepal and I got all my friends to come perform. It was at the art centre in Melbourne. And um, just like everything else, I just got through it. Mm. But um, you just... I'm I'm glad that I did it. I always used to joke and say, oh, people don't like me because I'm practical. But uh, one thing I really learned through that whole experience, one of the many things, was um, that I'm very good at an emergency. The harsh reality is <laughs> that about 2% of the population are short sleepers. They've got a gene. And it allows them to do everything they need to do in sleep in the five hours. They need five or six hours, whereas the other 98% of the population needs somewhere between seven to nine. That's the reality. Another 2% mm. of the population need more than nine. They've got the long sleep gene, so they've got the short straw. <laughs> so um, they actually need more time. So the big um, test is how do I feel when I wake up in the morning? How am I able to meet the joys and challenges of the day? And if I'm not able to be joyous or happy or I'm unmotivated or I'm finding thinking difficult or my, my good health is suffering, then chances are you're not getting enough sleep. However, if you're waking up after five hours and doing achieving what The Rock is doing, he might well be a short sleeper, but the vast majority of us are not. So just be aware that poor sleep really impacts our ability to have healthy, good relationships, to be able to communicate well with people, to be physically well, um, to be mentally well and engaged and motivated. So it affects all those really, really fundamental aspects of what makes me me. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast, please click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends and follow me on Instagram at NickBrax. I really appreciate your ongoing support. So mm-hmm. when I don't get enough sleep, I'm just like you, Nick, I think. I'm cranky. <laughs> I'm yeah. impatient. I don't think very well. And I change. I, I, I'm not happy. I'm not engaged. I'm not motivated. All of those things. And yet when I'm well slept, I think I am that person. I'm, you know, the highly motivated, happy, active person. And so I often say to people, sleep has the power to make me less of me, to change the mm. essence mm. of me. And so that's really a powerful thing, isn't it? Oh, it's a really powerful thing. It's, you know, it shows how it's one of the most important things that we get right. Um, and I, I think it really feeds into this whole thing and it's such a societal Western world thing about we need to get more done, be productive, do more, 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 and often trying to do more there's only so much time we all have every day and so much we can actually physically do. You know, we can uh, in life have a pretty set mind about where we want to go, but 
it's almost net we're almost always going to have to pivot so it's being clear on what the general goal is but also being adaptable that okay that might not work but you know what what's the other avenue i can quickly go down or where can i take these same skill sets and apply them in a different realm or whatever it is like it's we can't be set on one specific way of doing it that that's right I, you know I, you know there's only thing that stop us really it's ego mm. it's ego you know ego, ego stops everything doesn't it ego yeah. And, yeah. and and we constantly worry what everybody has got to think about us it's so hard. Like what I find hard is um, I've gotten a lot better with it, but with ego, it's like, you know, similar to you, I'm very ambitious. I want to do things and I keep trying and pushing myself and to compete. If you're competitive and you're competing in these industries full of egos, but you're trying to also keep that balance. How do you find that balance of keeping the ego at bay while pushing? Because you know what, Nick, you don't have to compete. Just be yourself. And yeah. do what you what you do well. It's having yeah. having three restaurants on one street, one Italian, one French, one Chinese. All right, one close on Monday, one close on Tuesday, one close on Wednesday. Why? Because they're helping each other to keep the customers in. They don't close yeah. at the same time, so the the busy the street is always busy. Competition is is the worst thing. Just be yourself and do what you do well. I'm back in Victoria right now and I've seen it even, you know, we've gone into a lockdown um, two days ago and I've heard so many people in Victoria saying, it's not fair. Why, you know, we've we've been played by the rules. It's not fair that we've been affected. Why haven't the other states been affected? And I'm thinking, hang on, this, is, this, this isn't... It's not this a game. Not, it's not a competition. You know, it's like we're all trying to, you know, everyone's doing their best. We're trying to deal with the situation it's a crazy line of thinking. Who cares? Like, let's oh, all just support man. each other. It blows my mind. It blows my mind, you know. It's not that hard. It's, you know what I loved about COVID so far is we've slowed down. Everybody's mm-hmm. slowed down. Everybody cues. Everybody talks to each other. Everybody respects each other. Everybody eats together at the table. You know, we play board games like we haven't played board games. We start reading again. You know, the planet looks better. You know, the, there's blue skies in countries that have never been blue skies before. There's more fish in the ocean than there's ever been. There's no plastic by floating anywhere. You know, like, I think there's pros and cons. But I think the, the human race are just a silly bunch of people. Unbelievable. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Illogical. Um, <laughs> but it is. But you know what I, what I love about everything you're saying here and is... You're you're always more looking towards the negative. The, sorry, not the negative. The the positive. What's the positive I can take out of this? And if we do take that step back in coronavirus, there's a lot of positives. Obviously, there's some negative things, but there's a huge amount of positives. And I think the point is, in life, no matter what decision we make, there's going to be good and bad outcomes. So we've got to be re- realize in society that there's no such thing as perfect. And it probably it feeds back into this whole ego competitive thing like you're saying you want to do something just do it who cares what anyone else is doing do it because you enjoy it you love it it really doesn't matter what the outcome is just go and you know do you things know, for yourself last year i uh, sorry last what are we 20 uh end of 2018 i was uh weighing 107 kilos i was like pretty big um again it was a a, a mixture of working hard not doing well in business, eating a bit too much, drinking a bit too much, not caring about myself enough. 
And I turned around to my wife. I said, January 19, uh, 2019, that's it. I'm, I'm doing this. So I took a 12-week challenge. And I, I've never been a sport person. Uh, physical stuff has never been me. Stopping food has never been me. Uh, not drinking has never been me. But I did 12 weeks of that. Diet, five days a week at the gym, no booze. Lost 12 kilos in a wow. space of 12 weeks. And I didn't do it for my image. I do it for my head. And I tell you what, Nick, it's been a year and a half and I still do five days a week sport and I still keep the weight down because it feels good in here. Beautiful. I, I love that. And and a, a huge part of the work I'm doing here actually and a thing we're, we're going to be releasing soon is actually programs around around that for your mind, you know, fitness for your mind, because I, I train every day or six days a week. And for the exact same reason as you, I come from a competitive sporting background. That's why I started doing it. But I, nothing helps mental, my mental health more than movement. And I think it's such a powerful thing. And I think that's such a great message you're saying. You're doing it not because you, you know, care, you're attaching it to how it's going to make you look. The, it makes the, you feel it's good. A, it's, that's a, at the end of the day, it's a bonus. You look good. That's the cherry on the cake. But before you look good, it makes you it makes you feel good before you look good. Actually, you know, you exactly. still, if you're still not in shape, but you, every day you come back from the gym or boxing or cycling, you come back and go, oh, you know, you you just you, you get into that shower, going, yeah, you know, you start the day wicked, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's a tricky thing to navigate, sort of from both angles as different challenges, I guess. Like, like you're saying, and um, I mean. For you, after what happened when with the crow and different periods in your career when you've had ups and downs or things happen, was it a matter of you just focusing on, you know, I'm just going to push forward because this is what I love doing and I just want to, you know... It's you, just, have to be t- you have to be tough. I mean, there's no question. You won't survive yeah. if you're not... Yeah. If you don't yeah. have a, a, a sort of a tenacious quality to your personality, you know. Um, mm. You know, I've been accused of being very... Uh, um, uh, uh, kind of pig-headed, but I think you, you know you, you, the business attracts those people because it, otherwise you just wouldn't survive. You know, um, at the same time though, you know, depression is a very real thing, and we all suffer it. You know, I've suffered mm. from depression. We all do. You know, it's a, the the very mm. nature of the business is one that um, can can make the 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 toughest person suffer from depression, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. It's part of life. You know, it's what we, we all go through it. You know, um, if you are, I mean, God knows the number of people who must be depressed right now because their businesses are falling over and they were doing, you know, quite well. And, and, uh, you know, they don't have work and whatever. I mean, it's like, it's everyone goes through this stuff, you know? So the, the film industry is a, is a, is a cruel, uh, is, is probably a crueler industry than most, you know? So, you're going to often be put into situations where you, uh, where you honestly don't, uh, you, you can't find the reasons for what you're doing. You know, you start to lose yeah. a sense of that. But I, you know, as I say, I, I, the way I get over it and, you know, it's not, I don't just snap out of it. It's really hard to do sometimes. And I haven't, I've never, you know, been on any sort of clinical level of depression uh, or medicated in any way or whatever. I don't know, maybe I have been, but I just haven't, haven't gone that far with it in terms of seeking help, you know. Maybe I should have in some instances. 
I know certainly going through what I did with um, on the crow, um, I can't imagine that there is a more there is a deeper well to to uh, fall into emotionally than what I experienced through that situation. Um, but my my solution in that instance was to uh, once um, Brandon's family had uh, had actually come to me and said you should finish the movie because. Brandon would want you to finish the movie and the other actors, the rest of the cast also did the same thing. Um, uh, I picked myself up and, and had that focus of, well, I'm, I know why I'm finishing this movie. I didn't want to finish the movie um, because as I say, I was in a pretty horrible state, um, but that's the reason yeah. that I picked and I, I had that as my inspiration. And I think that's what you have to do on any level of, if you're a creative person, you have to have that focus or you've got to retain that focus on that inspiration that's allowing you to overcome, you know, and to keep moving forward, yeah. you know, um, uh, on less, um, or not on less, but on, on, on difference in different situations, even just situations where um, you wake up in the morning and you're depressed and you don't even know why, you know, you're, 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 to me, I find my work is a, is a conduit to getting through that. I find focusing mm-hmm. on what I do, even just writing, I find any creative endeavor, I use it as a tool to overcome depression and to, and to find that hopeful spirit in, in, in my life, you know, um, you know, and my family of course is important and, and, and all that, but in terms of a solution through my work, I find the work itself is that solution. I, I, I live, I I like to, you know, and it's look, I'm a lot of my stuff is fantasy and science fiction based. And I, I like to build worlds and live in these sort of alternate worlds, you know, that I've created, which is, I guess, escapism on some level, but, but it's, um, but it's kind of my version of that, you know, and again, that's, that's my inspiration. That's what I, that's what keeps me going. You know, there is, is, living in this imaginative world that I create, you know, and creating these characters and these stories and is, is kind of my way of sort of solving problems of fixing psychological issues and, and, and dealing with all this bad stuff. There's the, the demons and all the crap that we all put up with, you know? Um, so I, I use the work to, to, to overcome that or to, to work through it, you know? Um, so that's a, that's a trick that works. It's a trick, but it's it's one that seems to work for me, you know. No, I, I think it's a really beautiful answer, and it's something where I think in life, and you know, whether you are a creative person or in a creative industry or whatever you're doing, it's um, if we I think if we can focus on the process rather than you know the outcome of things, and I think when people get overwhelmed, it's when we're always looking too far forward, or like we talked about before, waiting. But if it's like just focusing on I'm just going to do, you know, I just need to keep creating or doing what I'm my work or whatever it is to just because I'm getting value myself out of doing it. The the byproduct probably is that you'll end up actually getting results, you know, externally anyway. Greg, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I I think this is the first time I've spoken to you in about 8 years. I met you <laughs> in Australia under uh, unusual circumstances. So it's uh, so great to reconnect with you. And I just want to say, I know how busy you are. I know how much you get approached to do these kind of things. So I, I, I genuinely feel very honored to have you come on my podcast and have sure. this conversation with me. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, because yeah, you were on, uh, I was judging the Celebrity Splash in Australia, and uh, and you were one of the contestants, which was like so cool. We, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I was probably, uh, I mean, that show only went for one season, and I think in that one season, I, I did one of the worst <laughs> jobs of diving. I, I, I did attempt your famous dive, and basically turned it into what we call in Australia a, a belly whacker. So fell on yeah. my stomach from the um, 10 meter platform, but I gave it a go. <laughs> you gave it a go. That's yeah. what's important. You try things. You try and see, yeah, see how far you can go, right? Exactly. That's, that's all you can do. Uh, <laughs> so before, before we get in, um, into it, we normally ask the guests, are you able to just give a, a background on yourself uh, and how you came to where you are today? Uh, background on myself. Well, uh, shoot, where do you start? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to cover. I mean, it, it, probably a, a bit of an abbreviate. We'll cover certain things, but just to give okay. people a bit of a, a, a understanding of, you know, who you are and sure. how you got here. Yeah. I mean, it, well, every, most people know me from diving. I was in the Olympics and all that, but it, the next question is, how did you get into diving? So I started doing acrobatics and dance when I was a year and a half. I was- hey guys, if you're enjoying this podcast and want to learn more, I've released my first book, Move Your Mind, How to Build a Healthy Mindset for Life, where I talk about my own journey with mental health and share tips from experts on how to maintain a healthy mindset. You can buy the book on Amazon or through my website at nickbrax.com book. I had my first performance on stage when I was three. I sang Dance With Me and did a tap number. And then um, I got a partner and uh, my partner went into gymnastics and I followed her into gymnastics. That was my first love. And, uh, and then uh, we had a pool built in our backyard. And so I was trying some of my gymnastics stunts off the diving board at home. And my mom didn't want me to kill myself. So she got me lessons. And that's how I got into diving. Wow. And then the rest is history. I mean, you the rest arguably is the most, yeah, the arguably the most successful diver in history. And you've gone on to do a lot of things, you know, following that. So it's a pretty incredible story uh, and amazing what you've achieved. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's, I find it so fascinating talking to people like yourself. And I guess, you know, so much of that success, I presume, uh, comes down to mindset and focus and, oh, sure. you know, yeah. So was that, yeah. is that the case for you? You found it was really about being, you know, having that focus and discipline and, you know, ha- having the right mindset to, to sort of compete and achieve at that, at that level. Yeah. Well, um, you know, when I was, when I started school, I stuttered. So I was in speech therapy and then, um, you know, I, I was dyslexic. I didn't learn about dyslexia until I was in college. I was given dys- dyslexia as a vocabulary word in my freshman English class. And I looked it up and said, oh, no, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, all of the, the, you know, all of the labels that kids would call me, you know, oh, you know, you're stupid, you're retarded, you're a moron, you know, all of that stuff. And I believed it because I couldn't read like the other kids. So then, um, so I was in, you know, remedial reading and all that stuff, but, um, I didn't feel like I had my academics. So when I was performing on stage, uh, whether it was singing, dancing, doing acrobatics, uh, that was my area of success. I had success there. People applauded. I, you know, I got, um, you know, adulation and all that. And then moving into competition, you know, with gymnastics and, and then into diving, you know, getting some success there. 
and so that was <clears throat> really encompassed really my my self-esteem really mm-hmm. you know something that i could do i could do everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable too Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, I could show people, I could dance, I could do acrobatics, I could dive. Um, And so that's the reason why it was so important to me. Um, But as far as, you you know, my development... I was, I, I learned how to visualize when I was three years old, because that was my first wow. performance on stage. And so what my, in, my teacher said, it was the day of the recital. I got uh, my costume, I got a top hat and cane, some of the choreography kind of adjusted. And she said, okay, do the routine fluid, put the music on and left the room. So I was three years old. And the way that I interpreted oh it God. was, okay, Imagine myself doing the routine fluid. So it took, you know, four tries, three or four tries, and I got it fluid. And so then I went out of the studio. I found her in her office and I said, okay, I made it fluid. She came back into the, the studio, increased the tempo so it was faster than what I would be performing. And she said, make it fluid. I said, okay. And so even at the faster tempo, I could make it fluid. And she said, okay, you're ready. So then that was my introduction to visualization. Yeah. And then by the time uh, late 70s, early 80s, the sports psychologist started coming around the pool and saying, have you tried mental imagery or visualization? I'm like going, duh, doesn't everybody do that? You know, so, um, so that's really been the key to, you know, a, a big key to my success. You know, and mindset is a part of that too, you know, tapping into you know, those resources, because performance is in, is in your right brain and music yeah. is right brain, color is right brain, all of that creative stuff. When you start judging yourself, you know, you have that, that critic on your shoulder telling you how you can't do things and how you, you know, are supposed to do things, then that's left brain. So, yeah. So that's, that's the reason why I was able to be as successful as I was because I was so right brain dominant that, um, you know, I just tapped into that and, you know, the ability to perform. And that's how I viewed my diving. It it wasn't Mm. a competition to me. It was about a performance. So, and to perform um, to the best of my ability at that moment in time. I never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing today. So let me say what it is that I'm doing today. Today, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm licensed as a licensed professional counselor in, in the state of Idaho. Um, I'm an associate marriage and family therapist in the state of California. And then I um, licensed in a few other states uh, working under a uh, supervisor. And so basically, I'm in the, I'm in the, mental health field, um, got a master's in clinical psychology, which was all, you know, kick, bollock and scramble, as they say, it's uh, it was a last minute U-turn in my life to, to figure out what to do with myself. Um, 
think we will always have to figure out what to do with ourselves, right? It's, uh, it's a good thing to, to, to know what we're doing and um, which direction we're headed. So but before all that, you know, the real pivot came about uh, seven years ago now. Um, before that, coming up on seven years, yeah. Before that, I was, I was, uh, I was acting and writing and directing producing I, I was in the film industry um i grew up in the film industry my dad's an actor uh pierce brosnan um you know known for you know playing james bond and mamma mia and uh mrs doubtfire um i have a you know great story about good old robin you know bless his heart uh and so you know i, I grew up in that world and i guess if my dad was a uh, you know, a carpenter, I would have probably thought, you know, we're going to carpentry. Um, I didn't really know what to do with myself. Uh, so I went in to acting and, um, you know, I liked it. I, I uh, was in the theater for a while. I went to drama school. So I got my, um, in undergrad, my, my bachelor's in double majored in English and, and drama and uh, English lit and drama and um, so that was a fantastic opportunity because I got to play, you know, a lot of the characters I would never get to play um, as a professional actor. So, you know, well, maybe I would, but probably most likely not, uh, you know, like Richard III and Sheenan from Chekhov's Three Sisters. And anyway, uh, some great roles and had a great time Met some of my best friends who I'm still friends with today. And then, um, you know, along the way, I... I I think my ambitions were not necessarily uh, in in the right in the right place. You know, I got it. It's very easy to get swept away, especially these days. Um, you know, with, with the idea of celebrity, right? Especially growing up with uh, you know the in the, as a father who's a celebrity, as a you know famous, well known. Um, it's very easy to to kind of get sucked into the, the, the vortex of uh, what is an illusion and what is real. And I guess, you know, the inverted hierarchy of values, let's say, uh, within the machine that is um, entertainment, uh, you know, big money entertainment. And anyway, I, I kind of uh, lost my way. I did lose my way. and. And, you know, I was drinking a lot and doing a lot of drugs. And it wasn't because of the entertainment industry. I had a whole bunch of other things. That, but that certainly didn't help. But it wasn't like, oh, here's a roadmap to how to, how to live a healthy lifestyle. It was like, oh, no. You, you know, it's all very, um, very superficial. So, so I got really wrapped up in that. And uh, I was acting. And then I went into directing and um, writing and directing. And I was, I, you know, made a feature film um called my father die you know which is, makes me laugh now because <laughs> uh you know after studying some of the stuff i've studied and i look back at like you know not knowing what i know now back then and going oh right okay so there were some things going on um and you know i love my dad so nothing to do with my dad but you know it's a uh, deep psychological rooted archetypal stuff in that and but it was the the movie was based on um on a on a irish play 18th century play by by jm singh called Playboy the Western World, where basically this young farm boy kills his father with a shovel. And, uh, and he thinks his dad's dead, he buries him. 
and dad comes back. It's the boy runs away to a different town, becomes a hero for killing his father, right? The, the kind of uh, playing on a lot of you know, archetypal myths here, kind of Greek mythology. And, and anyway, it turns out dad's not dead. He comes out of the ground and comes after his son. And the whole third, act, you know, the end of the third act is, you know, them outside of this bar. And anyway, so I basically adapted that into like a, you know, um, deep south, uh, you know, kind of B movie. I mean, I just bastardized this poor play. JM Singh's probably rolling in his grave, going, "Oh my god!" I mean, it, it, anyway. So, from all that, um, I was really looking back now, channeling a lot of darkness into what I was doing, and uh, you know, channeling my own pain and suffering into what I was doing, and got consumed by it. I think, um, and and then it, there, there was a kind of tipping point, right? We don't know what we don't know. And, um, you know, things got, got pretty dark and my daughter was born, she's seven now. And, uh, you know, we, we basically ran out of money and kind of cutting a long story short here, but um, it, it got really bad and I didn't know what else to go do. You know, uh, my best thinking was at the time, you know, it did get so dark. I, I was really contemplating killing myself. That, that was the, uh, that was the, you know, the best thinking I had in the moment um, because I just, you know, I was a tornado right? and it seemed like everything I turned, everything I touched turned to shit. <laughs> you know, I was just hurting people left and right, including myself. And, um, and I, and I didn't know what to do. And a, a mentor of mine, you know, sent me this video and video kind of touched home a bit and um, made sense. And, basically the kind of message was like, you know, what else are you an, an expert at besides what it is that you're doing? If you want to get out of the thing you're doing. And the irony was, you know, the, the gold was to be found in the wound itself. And, um, but that meant I would have to sacrifice quite a bit in order to, to kind of, change things uh get really humble essentially um so i i realized i'm i know quite a bit about doing drugs and drinking alcohol <laughs> right and uh you know, my siblings have suffered yeah you know, my, my older siblings my sister you know um uh no longer with us anymore not because of that because of ovarian cancer which my mother had and uh but you know she she battled alcoholism my older brothers battled, battled alcoholism and addiction and same as me and he's doing great now and uh so i knew it it was in my family um and certainly in me and and i was like oh shit i think that's um probably what i you know that's what i know i was like i bet if i got my act together somewhat i could maybe pull us out of this uh financial mire that we're in and um you know the, the dreams that i had of being the person that I thought I wanted to be and living a lifestyle that I thought I wanted to have. Um, I had to really ask myself some, some hard questions about, well, why do I want that? You know, why, why, like, is it for really, is it for me or is it for somebody else? Is it to prove mm -hmm. something? Is it to, and uh, very hard questions to, 
to grapple with. And I wouldn't say I figured those out straight away. I'm still figuring them out, but I brought them down somewhat. And um, so I, I basically, you know, I haven't told anybody this. So you're the first one to know, Nick. I appreciate <laughs> don't it. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't, don't let anybody. Anybody. I trust you, buddy. I trust you. Uh, <laughs> don't air this anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I went and, uh, you know, I, I was like, I'm going to go work for rehab. Um, so in order to work for drug and, all, drug and alcohol rehab, you have to have at least usually two to five years of sobriety under your belt. Uh, I had three months and um, I, I lied and I said I had two years and I got the job and I was, you know, collecting, you know, pissed for you ways to drug test people and getting spat on. And, you know, it was just such a, such a, you know, I've had that stuff kind of in other aspects of my life, like, you know, going to jail and being in rehab myself and that kind of thing. But all of a sudden now having to be the one to keep that cool and going through my own struggle and then being in such a, you know, the one in authority in a, in a place that, you know, I think I went to something crazy, like 18 rehabs, wow. a bunch of uh, sober livings, a few psych wards, you know, did the, did the gamut, a few little, um, you know, a couple of days here and there and in jail and just, just stupid stupid stuff and so all of a sudden to be on the other side and not only that but to be trusted with a set of keys that opens up a medicine cabinet where you have literally like <laughs> this pandora's box of just goodies <laughs> you know everybody's you know and they like because they confiscate drugs off people when they come in so they put them into this lockbox and now i have the keys to this lockbox and i have three months of sobriety so now i see why they say you know you should have two to five years um and uh that was it. I like, I knew I was, I was done and uh, uh, something just felt right. And I didn't even know at that point that I was going to go into mental health. I just knew that this was a job. This is something I knew. I, I, these are my people, um, you know, and I, I could relate. Uh, you know, it's like I could quite easily be in the, in the bed there. And um, mm. if they only knew. Uh, and so, and then it was a therapist there who basically, said, have you ever thought about going back to school? And um, so I went back to school to get my master's and, you know, I was doing that and then working as a dishwasher at night and then um, working in the, in the rehab during the day and, um, and then doing other odd jobs for, for a good two years whilst doing my master's program. And yeah, that was, you know, so quite the, you know, dish work as uh robert bly calls it in uh, a book called iron john which is great for anybody listening it's a it's incredible a book. book about yeah it's amazing yeah you know going and gotta go uh, do some ash work into the ashes and uh figure it out and get humble and um yeah so that's kind of how how it happened a little bit i mean there's a lot more to it but uh but i love what i'm doing now it's, you know it's amazing well, yeah, first of all, thank you for, for sharing it. There's so many negative things happening behind the scenes, so many mental health issues coming from it, and it's sort of not 
talked about enough not enough's done about it there's not enough um you know provisions in place to to deal with it and then people don't feel like they um they're allowed to talk about it or they feel like if they do do something about it or stand up for it that they're gonna you know sacrifice their career and it's yeah it's a really negative thing so it sounds very similar absolutely i think every industry really if you really step back you know fashion same you know yeah Again, it's a lot of selfishness. I always say we're not here to do a mission alone. I mean, this is why I love kitchens. We're here to collaborate. We're here to help each other. If everyone just stopped and just helped each other, you could maybe, you could grow so much more than just doing the mission alone. And and the industries will change. It was that care, that that awareness for others. You know, a lot of people are not aware for the surroundings. And um, I think, as I was saying, I think a lot of people are starting to really wake up to this and wake up to to energies as well. You know, I've worked in kitchens that are so toxic that you can taste that in the food. You know, I always say I step back from the stoves mm-hmm, if I'm mm-hmm. feeling very stressed or feeling really depressed or down because you'll be able to taste that. Same as anything you do. Mm. So many different tactics my parents have probably, just who I am as a person. So, yeah, I mean, I think just like you said a second ago, it's each of my siblings too were so free thinkers. I think that's Mm. also because we were homeschooled. And I think that's really important because the school system Mm. kind of teaches kids to be like, oh, there's only one answer. There's only one system of doing this. If you find the answer, it still doesn't matter because you didn't do it the way we were trying to teach you. And it's like, oh, well, I guess we're not allowed to think outside of the box. That's like not allowed in any way. And my mom allowed us to always kind of come to our own conclusions. And then she'd be like, well, that is like a form of the answer. And that's interesting that you'd come to that conclusion. And so it always taught us that we were allowed to do that. And we were allowed to have curiosity. But I feel like in the school system, Mm -hmm. you're not allowed any sort of curiosity. It's like, oh, no, there's a very specific way you have to do this. And so I feel like that's something that should be, I don't know, allowed more nowadays. Oh, massively. Your mum sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> she sounds so cool. You really yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, please tell her. You tell you tell your mum that I'm super impressed. Uh, we need more mums like your mum. <laughs> it's so hard not to sit in that feeling of just uh, self-hatred or frustration at, you know, making a mistake in something. Yeah, and that's... Can I tell you where I believe it all comes from? Yeah. My, this is my own, you know, I never read books and stuff, and I, people always laugh at me. I got through university without reading, and, and mm. <laughs> I, I, I never went to class or anything. Yeah. But, um, but, so I kind of try to listen to here, and my belief, just a quick thing, is that we came here as little children so full of life. I used to lifeguard, and I'd watch kids at the beach. They're never, ever bored. They're just so full of life. In grade one, we start teaching children at home and in our community and church or whatever that something out there is going to make them happy like their money the marks the trophies their skills their looks whatever it is so what happens is we move from our heart to our head yes when i'm in my head i i miss my heart you know like that was the love of life that's been in the moment you know as eckhart tolle says in the power of now mm. by the way i helped him publish that book and uh, really? the power of now oh, well i gotta ask you about he, that he second. came yeah. to me because my little book so it was quite an honor wow. now he's all over the world just about being in the moment right so so in grade one we we move from our heart to our head we start moving and 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 what happens is we start to be disconnected from our heart and so when we're unhappy, we have a choice to put other people down, which is bullying, 
or we can grow as a person. But sadly, in schools, we don't talk about feelings. We don't, you know, we're, we're marked at a very early age. So what we do in, in school is we're always comparing ourselves to each other, like in sports or, or, or school or whatever, our looks again, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so what we do is every person has something about themselves they don't feel good about. And so we focus on that. Mm. You could ask, because you speak at schools, you could ask an assembly of 600 kids, how many of you have been bullied? Every hand will go up, yeah. but they think they're alone. So when we're, when we're disconnected from our heart like that, um, um, then we're not happy. And so we have that choice, and then it bec- we become so conditioned to that. As we get older, we want all these different things, you know. And um, at our funeral, no, nobody ever says what kind of car you had or what kind of mark. It's the kind of person we are. But mm-hmm. we lose touch. So, so my belief is that a lot of our anger, I'm not saying the things always, but um, our anger is that we're angry because not that many years ago, you were that little child on the beach so full of love and excitement, and you've lost that. And we're angry because of that. And we're here, we're comparing ourselves to other people. So I believe now there's only one main addiction, and that we're addicted to not feeling good enough. So mm-hmm. just like you said, when you put yourself down or you do something you don't feel good about. So I believe we all don't feel good enough, or most all of us, I can't say all, but we, we don't feel good enough, and then we're drawn to other forms of addiction, like drinking or drugs or food or whatever it is, because who doesn't want to feel not good enough? And that numbs our feelings. And if you go to the downtown east side again, where people are addicted and stuff, mm-hmm. Every person there, their story was of abuse or trauma or whatever, and um, they they want to numb themselves. They don't want to feel. And I said, but by feeling, that's when you're going to start growing. And with that event that I did, people would be in tears, and that's what's healing because they're opening up their heart and saying. And then people are giving them a standing ovation for saying, "Well, I was raped or whatever," and 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 um, I just feel so much shame. And then to get a standing ovation. They're like, how empowering. They're like, wow, nobody's really judging me. I'm judging myself. I'm Mm -hmm. beating myself up because I don't feel good enough. Yeah. Isn't that tragic, eh? Once a month, I would moonlight at a state hospital, meaning I would cover for the other psychiatrists. And sometimes you're sleep deprived. And when you're sleep deprived, you know, your body does kind of weird things. So there it is a Monday. I've been seeing Nancy for six months. I don't think I'm helping her. So if you're me, and I'm Nancy, she'd be like this. And so I hadn't slept for 24 hours. And as she seated with me, all the color in the room turned to black and white. And I'm looking out, and the room is black and white. And then I get these chills. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. Now I'm a medical doctor. I'm a psychiatrist. So she's not looking at me. So it wasn't rude. I did a neurologic exam on myself. She's like this, and I'm going like this and like this, seeing if I'm having double vision. I'm tapping my elbows, tapping my knees. And then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world through her eyes and feeling the dark night of the soul. And it was cold. And because I was sleep-deprived, I blurted out something that I normally wouldn't say. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of the pain. 
And I thought, I think I just gave her permission to kill herself. I remember saying to myself, don't write that in the medical record. Don't write that one down. And Nick, that was the first time, that was the first time she looked at me and she grabbed onto my eyes like I'm grabbing onto your eyes. And I thought she was going to say, thanks for understanding. I'm overdue. And I said, what are you thinking? And she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of all this pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she smiles. And then I grabbed onto her eyes, because this was the first time we made eye contact. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to throw treatments at you unless you ask for them, because you've been through all kinds of treatments, and most of them haven't worked. Would that be okay? And she looked at me, she said, I'm listening. And then I leaned into her eyes like I'm leaning into yours, and I said, this is what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to find you wherever you are. And when I find you, I'm going to keep you company. Because I don't want you to be there alone anymore. Would that be okay? And then her eyes teared up, and we turned a corner. And that was the birth of something that I've given a name to in the last three years called surgical empathy. So you ask how we do what we do. I, I, none of my patients died by suicide in 30 years. And I use surgical empathy. Wow. It was very simple. And I'm trying to teach the world. When people are suicidal, and I've seen a bunch, uh, I wrote an article called Why People Kill Themselves. It's not depression. I wrote it after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died. 300,000 mm -hmm. views. And I said, it's not depression. Depression contributes to it. Loss of job contributes to it. Loss of marriage contributes to it. But what they all feel at the end is they feel despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S, P-A-I-R, they feel unpaired with a reason to live. Hopeless, worthless, useless, meaningless, purposeless. And when it all lines up, pointless. And they pair with death to take the pain away. And they form psychological adhesions, not attachments. An adhesion is like what happens after surgery when organs get stuck together. And a psychological adhesion doesn't listen to reason or insight. Surgical empathy can cut the adhesion when they feel felt. And when they feel felt and less alone in hell, they start to cry. The core of it's about, about mindset. And I, I read um, mm -hmm. a thing you had said where, um, I won't read the whole thing, but you'd said, you know, there's no excuses in fighting. Um, you can be playing a team sport and have a good game and you can still lose in fighting. It's all on me. And if I go out there and lose, then it's my fault. And mm -hmm. you said that you like that. And I can sort of relate to that from when I used to compete in, in running. I, I went from football to uh, middle distance running at a pretty high level. And um, now with acting as well, I love that feeling i mean it can be hard in different ways but that feeling that this is all on me i don't mm -hmm. i'm not a you know i it's every single thing i do um whether whether i get a result i control and that's up to my mindset i mean yeah. how how big of a part does mindset play in that is that that's the the number one thing 
Yeah, uh, mate, it, it really is. It really is. It's something that uh, for me, obviously, I can only talk uh, from my experience, and uh, that is uh, through MMA and mixed martial arts and uh, like martial arts in general. Not only uh, you get the, the values and morals that, you know, you respect and honor and all that type of discipline, and, which, you know, goes a long way as well. But I mean, competing uh, is, you know, in any sport is really good. But just something about MMA, again, I'm going to talk from my experiences, mm. uh, you know, uh, like, you know, you know, building resilience and building, uh, you know, you know, such a, a, a word that's used so much now. But, you know, I, I come to MMA and I, you know, I think of, you know, the more and more I talk about it, the more and more I, I'm in, uh, like having chats about it, I, I start, I, the more I learn about it, I learn, learn about myself, like what, what made me that person that's, you know, that's just going to do what needs to be done. Like, how do I get through some of these sessions I need to do? Like, some of these sessions I do, some people watch me and see you know, my fitness and all that, and they just can't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I, I bring it to, to like, them early days in the gym or maybe even my childhood, you know, where, where it is, you know, you know, building resilience. Uh, we didn't even know I was doing it at the time, but, you know, but that's why I feel like, and it's something that I know even for my daughters, I'd love to put them into martial arts because, you know, competing, you know, losing, you know what I mean? Losing, being in uncomfortable positions, being in a position where you're fighting to get back up, you know, it's mm-hmm. not comfortable, mm-hmm. but do I just give up? Do I stop? No, you're going to, you're going to push through it. And if you're constantly doing that your whole life, you know, obviously these are, these are uh, battles you're going to have in life as well. You know what I mean? You are going to be, you know, things are going to want to pull you down you've got to try and push yourself through it. But I do believe like these are things while I'm in the gym, I'm just constantly, you know, I'm building the resilience. I'm building a, you know, I, one thing that I use a lot is, uh, uh, this is my sort of saying is I get I'm, I say comfortable in uncomfortable positions. I wouldn't yeah. say comfortable. That's probably the wrong word. But I accept uncomfortable positions. Uh, so you know I am gonna get uncomfortable, and you know what I mean. And I, I've accepted as it's how do I get through that then? How do I move on from there? How do I get over that hurdle? Do I just give up? Or do I find a way that that's going to work? Or, you know what I mean? I'll just get through it. You know what I mean? So I'm not going to tell uh, people, you know, again, this is, you said this is more about a mental side of things. I don't have all the answers. But I mean, one thing that I know from my experience is I deal with it through the resilience and through, uh, you know, through being in these positions where, you know, sometimes you ain't going to always win. You know what I mean? So that that's why I love my sport, like, uh, you know, starting it. I wish I started when I was younger, but I'm lucky mm-hmm. enough, uh, whether it was through my childhood, being through, through my family, and again, my, my parents were just, you know, hard workers, and there was times where, you know, they were great for me, I, you know, I'm not going to lie, I had everything uh, I needed, but, you know, they were hard workers, they were, you know, they they come from, you know, villages, they come back and they worked for what they had to work for, and, you know, there was times where I was a very young guy and I had to, you know, fend for myself where I, you know, make, cook my own feeds, get to school myself. And there'll be days where I forgot to pack my own lunch and I wouldn't have the whole day without food at school. And, all right, well, you know, I just had to deal with the type of thing. But again, it was not something that I'm not from, trying to throw shade on my parents. It was just they were hard workers and, and they were there. And I had responsibilities that I had to look after. And yeah. uh, it, rather than being angry about it, I'm, I'm sort of glad I was sort of put in them positions as well. You know, I'm not saying for parents to just do that, you know what I mean? But I just mean for me, my life experience, I believe it's, it's uh, that, that helped me be the type of person I am, you know, when I'm in these uncomfortable positions, just be like, it's all right, I've got to get through it. You know, I'm not going to just stop. I'm not just going to give up. I'm just going to go. And, and I'm doing this on a day-to-day basis in the gym. My coach makes me work hard. You know, there's sessions where I say 
that, you know, fighting is the easy part. Preparation for the fight is the hard part. I don't get nervous to fight. I get nervous for some of my my training sessions because I know I'm going to go to breaking point. But do I give up or do I move forward? Sorry, I kept going on with that, but that's sort of what I, where I wanted to go with that that sort of message. Being accepting uncomfortable positions and how do you deal with that? Do we just give up or do we at least accept it? And then how do how do we make ourselves better from that? Thank you so much for supporting Move Your Mind. And once again, I hope you have a great Christmas and New Year's. See you next year. Also, a huge thank you to those of you listening. I really appreciate your support. If you'd like to learn more or connect with me personally, visit www.nickbrax.com or send me a DM on Instagram at nickbrax. Please don't forget to click the subscribe button, leave a like or comment, share with your friends, and follow me on Instagram. It really makes a difference. Thank you so much. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.